it doesn't really matter which org structure you're in because there'll be good bits to it and bad bits to it. So you take the good bits for free and then you have to spend all your effort fighting the bad aspects of the org structure. And that's been very true. Whichever way we're organized, it's the downsides that you have to work to deal with because you get the good sides for free. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Goddard, Chief Technology Officer at G Research, a leading quantitative research and technology company working in the algorithmic investment space where he's helped to seed and scale the company over the last 20 years. Now, I first got connected with Chris in 2015 after he had read Lean Enterprise and was curious to apply the principles and practices at G Research. And at the time, the company had hit an inflection point where the methods that had made them successful to date was actually a local maximum. But they called it out, owned the situation and recognized they needed to adapt. Working with Chris and the team over the last few years has been hugely inspiring and insightful for me. G Research work right on the edge of technology innovation and investment ideas that predict the future of financial markets. Working with the team has actually really helped me evolve my thesis on the power of gathering and synthesizing data to inform your products and business model investments, much of which is actually captured in my latest article, Precision Product Creation which you can download from my website. But before we dig into the paper, let's dive into the outstanding podcast with Chris. You know, what struck me immediately about him as a leader is that even while he was really successful with a massive business growing exponentially, he and the company were continually seeking new ways to improve, change their systems of work and innovate their products. They've built an interesting business on scientific techniques but creative investment strategies. There's been many iterations of the business as we've worked together. And Chris and the lessons he's learned at each stage, what worked, what held them back, yet have become a forcing function for the next step as they scale. You'll hear how he's developed as a leader, shifted the culture from being internally focused to outwardly facing, intellectual property conservative to embracing and contributing back to open source projects. It's an inspiring journey and one we're excited to share, including Chris's top tips for people as they embrace their own journey. But before we go there, let's go back to where it all started for Chris. That first moment, his father brought home the computer and he started writing computer games. I think the first thing he did was took me into the office where they had a mainframe. And also I never heard of a mainframe, but he had this little terminal there with a green screen on it. And I played the first ever Asteroids game. I think it must have been because never heard about it since, but there's some guy had coded it up and this was you could go and sit inside the data center and, and do this. And I think that just piqued my interest. And as I went through my teenage years, I was doing a lot of programming and realized that I could monetize that skill and did a whole bunch of different things in the holidays. And it was a lot more fun than shelf stacking, which I did as well, so I can kind of vouch for the two of them. And I think it just sort of went from this. It was a fairly obvious choice for me to try and do computer science as a, as a degree, which was, I guess, the more formal side of that. I did that. I enjoyed that. Spent three summers working down in Cheltenham for Her Majesty's Government doing a sponsorship course there, which was great, but didn't feel like the kind of thing I wanted to do for a career. So 
I had a letter from a company called DE Shore and Company, who I'd never heard of and nobody I knew knew had heard of either, who were building out a London office. And they said they were a, a sort of a quantitative hedge fund. So I went along to the interviews, met some really smart people there, thought, right, great, I'm going to code up trading systems. This is great. I've got a job offer. And on my first day, the CTO said to me and one of the other guys, I'm actually going to swap your jobs because you think you're going to be a programmer. And the other one thought he was going to be a sort of systems hacker because he knew all about the internals of Unix and all that stuff. And he said, I think it's going to be good for your development if you both do something that you're not expecting to do and learn the full stack of the subject. And to be honest, I was pretty annoyed. It wasn't what I thought I signed up for. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I ended up on the IT help desk in my first two months. And I thought, hang on, I went and did a degree. I've spent years programming and selling my wares to people to do this. But what it really taught me was how the ecosystem of everything hung together, how, how you needed to think about the building blocks being bigger than just lines of code. It was also servers and systems and different sites and kind of how people use the technology. So that, I think, set me up for a fairly kind of interesting career. So for the first few years, I was doing a lot of systems and infrastructure-related stuff. I actually then went traveling for eight, nine months with a friend, which was pretty good. Came back, joined a, a startup business, which was in the commercial insurance sector. And again, spotted a, an issue there where they didn't really know what they were doing. They got some VC money and it had a good business idea, but the technology side was was not very fully formed. So we ended up figuring out what to do with that. Built Actually, it was a cloud solution back then, but we called it ASP, so sort of application service provider, and built it in a data center and, and then everybody connected into it so you could upgrade it without needing to do upgrades on site and all that kind of stuff. So I did that for a few years and the company still still there, really successful, but it felt like it'd be a long slog to build it up. And yeah, I got yeah. approached by, by some people I knew from my old D-Shore days to go and join a new sort of quant firm that was starting up and trying to grow in London this time with London as the, the head office. And that's where I've been ever since. So the company's changed names a, a few times, but it's currently sort of, we trade under the name G Research. So that the most successful firm nobody's ever heard of outside of there, how <laughs> we like to think about it. And I've had a whole bunch of roles in there. So started more on the infrastructure side, but over time moved to looking after some of the development teams because there, there was a need then all of the development teams because the, the focus was to try and bring all of that together. And then we actually hired in some really good talent from elsewhere after you and I had met this. We were trying to sort of grow the software engineering effort. And more recently, I don't look after anybody really because I got moved into a more strategic role as chief technology officer where my focus had to change from sort of trying to run and deliver projects to thinking about what we need to be doing in the future. So even though I've been there for near on two decades, it feels like it's been about five different jobs on the way through. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that's fascinating about knowing you is your appetite to sort of take on these different challenges. They always seem to be a little bit outside your comfort zone. And you're, you're never afraid to tell people that you don't know the answers. You know, I think so many leaders I, I meet are always trying to have this perception that they know what the right thing is to do, or their job is to tell people what to do. But I think one of the things that really struck me about you. And it's interesting to hear you tell the stories about like sitting on help desks and hearing from people about what the real problems were, and then sort of putting your critical thinking skills to work, right? Like the then figuring out like you're hearing these problems and then starting to figure out the solutions. And you're definitely one of these leaders who, who will look and listen for the problems and try and solicit ideas from people about how to get there. 
and bring people along with you not knowing the answer, right? So that's not like what I see a lot. What makes you think that that's a little bit probably natural to you, but other people probably struggle with? Some of that comes with time, to be honest with you. There are times when I felt I probably was trying to do some work and then shouting, look at what I've done, look at what I've done. And that was especially true when we were in a London office with the US headquarters, because it was you're trying to get attention and say, look, please, you're not the center of gravity. Look, I think I've done something useful here. But I think over time, as I sort of moved into more senior roles and felt more comfortable with what I was doing, I've learned a lot. It's about asking good questions. Actually, I've read some good books around asking beautiful questions and managing in the gray and a bunch of things about actually you need to be looking for inspiration elsewhere. So it doesn't necessarily mean copying people exactly in your field. It might just be thinking, well, okay, how do other people in completely different industries solve this? Or surely we're not the only people facing this problem. And then then you kind of go out and look for the patterns. I just think it takes quite a lot of experience to, to do that. And there's probably, I'm sure, still times that the folks I work with will say, no, no, you're quite opinionated and you don't <laughs> well enough. But you just need to keep trying to do that and admit that sometimes you get it wrong. And I think one of the things being in a company for so long teaches you is you can't do that thing turning up and blaming the old guy because we're on about iteration four of our systems now and the old guy is me, me, and me. (laughs) So you kind of need to learn to say, you know what, that was a pretty stupid thing we did then. But we did it based on information we had to hand and we did the best thing we thought we could do at the time. So I think that has helped actually that sense is you can't just blame everyone else. Do a new strategy, disappear before two or three years is out and then... The next person who comes in blames you because your strategy was crap, but it's just constantly rolling. So, and that for me has been, I guess, one of the things you just have to face up to your mistakes. Everyone makes them. This is a really interesting point for me as well. So, how do you start to get that sense, right? And like you mentioned, and I believe too, like strategies last for a period of time, right? Mm-hmm. It's a problem based on a situation. You know, you make some choices and go after it. It works, it doesn't, right? What has helped you recognize some of those interesting moments? Because I think back to when we met, right? So this is probably like 2015, just Red Lean Enterprise. And, you know, when you were looking for some of these inspirations and some parts of that struck you and, and we connected and, and went from there. Like The company was at a really interesting point as well. I think you were, you were sort of at this, almost at, at the bottom of this next sort of growth curve for yourselves. What you, you were trying to go from, a couple of hundred to like many hundred to, you know, thousands. And yeah. so what, what helped you recognize you were at another inflection point there and you were going to have to do something like let go of what had made you previously successful to sort of get onto the next curve? What were some of the signals? There were a few things then. It was actually, I guess, born to some extent. It felt at the time reaching out to you felt like it was born out of necessity because we started the quant business sort of building a fully systematic trading business that could do research and black box algorithms and what have you, when hardly anybody knew that that stuff was possible. So that was in the sort of early 2000s. There were a few companies started, but it definitely wasn't mainstream. And the whole data science and, and democratization of, of all these kind of machine-driven sort of decision systems just wasn't really the thing it is now. So through the financial crisis, and I guess until around the early 2010s or something, we'd, we'd been operating, I guess, a bit like you would if you were in stealth mode. You kind of pretend you're not there. You don't tell anybody anything about what you're doing. You're quite small. And you can sort of hire enough people through word of mouth to live like that. 
we lived very, very privately for, for quite a long time and, and built what we thought was a pretty successful firm. But a lot was happening in the outside world in the meantime, which it turns out we were way too blind to because we were too insular. We also had a security incident where we had an insider who tried to steal a whole load of our stuff, which was it's traumatic for any business, but when it's a business that deals in intellectual property and it's one of your own that does it to you, it's almost like a post-traumatic stress. Yeah, absolutely. For the organization. So we had all that. We were in quite hard sort of lockdown post that event. And the person that I worked for, the, the guy who founded our company, always asks quite searching questions. He said to me one day, he said, why does it feel like it's not working? Like we were adding more resources and the, the business was doing well. But it felt like it was getting harder. And we thought, well, why, hang on, we've been doing this for well over a decade. Why is it not getting easier? And we realized that for every one engineer we added, we were getting way less than one engineer's output. And instead of getting economies of scale, we were getting some diseconomies of scale. And this was just about the time I'd been asked to run all of the software teams together. And I sat there and I thought, I have no idea what to do here or what the answer is. And I realized because of this private mode we've been operating in and a bit of probably self-congratulatory, we've figured it out, we know what we're doing stuff. I hadn't been reading for years. I just had not read. I, I might have read motorbike magazines or something, but I wasn't really <laughs> press about like... And then I realized what we'd focused on was we'd spent a lot of time focusing on the functionality. We were adding smart stuff to the system, but because it was so profitable, even if we added it in a really dumb way the project was a success. So we didn't yeah. have this kind of stuff you have in a startup when a firm that's got very stiff competition in, a, in an industry where the margins are lean, where you can't do things in a bad way. And I realized we weren't focusing on our craft. We weren't thinking about how should you do software engineering well. And that's when I started, I read continuous delivery and sort of then lean enterprise and started reaching out and trying to figure out somebody who could maybe help explain how all this stuff works. And then we met and you came and helped us and you were shocked at the fact the walls had nothing on. There was the software engineering teams with nothing on the walls. And six months later or so, it's like they were called Barry Post-its because (laughs) all the exercises you got us to do, we we just had this sort of splash of colour around everywhere. And it that felt like it just cracked open the creativity that was it was in the business, but we sort of stifled it. So I think it was all those things that led up to thinking we could carry on, but we probably are going to get beat if we do. And actually, as it was, we ended up adopting lots of open source, lots of kind of technologies. We've changed the culture around engineering to you kind of construct software when you need to, but use the benefit of what's out there in the wider world. We've even got an open source team that we fund to do open source development first and give back. So we've changed a lot of things that were totally not in the DNA of the company until that time. Yeah, this is fabulous, right? And there's so many points here I, I really want to unpack and share, right? Because I think so many companies really struggle to go through the transition you've done, like from this sort of, you know, somewhat private company to suddenly flipping all that and being like open to the point, like here's some of the modules we're building and pushing them back into the market, right? Like most quant firms would, that's absolutely the opposite of how they you'd think they operate, right? And going through that transition. And I love that you sort of called out this notion of opening up the creativity of your teams. Like one of the things that struck me instantly from just spending time with you and the team is like how bright people were. Very, very thoughtful people who super smart and really great to work with. Like I really enjoyed sort of these intellectual, in a way, debates with these folks. Like it felt like true 
sort of scientific debate in a way, which I don't really get that often, right? Where you throw up ideas and they're, they're generally perceived as a hypothesis. And there is this sort of Socratic back and forth that happens. And they're really challenging the idea. I never felt like somebody was saying, you're, no, you're wrong. There's this very interesting sort of psyche that sort of existed with the type of characters that were in the company it was interesting to me. But maybe, as you say, like just a little bit, a little bit of this, maybe some of the creativity, a little bit like not as visible. And it's funny you mentioned the post-its. I still remember like going, going back to visit and then the whole place looked like a design studio where it looked like a science lab the week before, right? Yeah, yeah. So, it definitely so what, was a visible change. So what did you see then, like from a culture perspective then, like what did you see sparking, like people joining disparate dots, more yeah. energy in the office? Like talk a little bit about yeah. what happened there. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, it actually grew from there. So we, I mean, like, like with everything, you have certain people who grab it with both hands, really try and understand the concept and run with it more than others. But we started measuring stuff more. So I think all of that coincided with the sort of the state of DevOps reports and, and the sort of the work of the various people involved with that to try and say, look, is there causality linked into all this stuff? If you do these things, can you scientifically say that you're going to get a better outcome? And a lot of the stuff around agile working methods and DevOps and, and all those things actually ended up being proven to have an impact on your ability to get features out faster with fewer errors and, and all that kind of stuff. So we measured that and actually we, we had some quite telling graphs. Our current head of engineering showed to the board just a couple of months ago, which is back from 2016, which is about a year after you came and when we started measuring it. And literally the graph lines are all jiggling all over the place and lots of gaps between them with, with high numbers. And it's all just drifted right down. And, and over time, it's just continued down. And that sort of makes me believe that that's actually affected a proper cultural change. It's just the teams, and every now and then teams realize they're slipping backwards and their software is becoming more unreleasable or more unreliable. And then they'll take a pause and say, right, we need a tech debt fortnight. We're just going to try and pay down some craft or we're going to, we're celebrating deleting lines of code now rather than writing lines of code. So teams proudly last year announced that they deleted one and a half million lines of code from one of our four trading platforms, which doesn't seem like an obvious measure of success, but even our board knows that that's a good thing now because we've kind of talked so much about what it means to carry this anchor of, of tech debt around with you. So I think the creativity came out and teams trying different things. So we had lunch and learns, we've had internal conferences, we've had trade shows. That was pretty cool when we could all actually still be in the office to do that. We actually Every team did a little display of what their team does. And now we're sort of nearly eight, 900 people. You do that even one year to the next. You have maybe two or 300 new joiners who hadn't seen all of these teams. So it was actually became, when we first suggested it, oh, is this going to be really naff and will anybody enjoy it? And actually, yeah, they yeah. making games and they had like things you'd throw stuff at and there were puzzles on the wall and kind of like walkthroughs of what, what their systems and apps are. I felt there was actually a real desire, even in a company that isn't giant, gigantic, to learn about what other people do and to express their sort of their team's pride in how they work and what they do. And it's, it's been great to see those kind of things happen. And a lot of them are quite organic. Now. It's interesting when you, t- again, talk about this stuff emerging, but I think you've got to put the systems in place, right? Yeah. Like, I think this is where, I get almost maybe the, the quant side of the, the company where you do actually measure things. Like that you looked at things like frequencies of deployments or mean times to recovery or all of these metrics that show that it's a high performance engineering outfit, right? That you're, you're shipping product all the time. And 
people being aware of those things, like making changes and seeing if it impacts those metrics, not like both from a effectiveness of delivery, but also, you know, the great thing about your business is you can, at the end of the day, you know, you find out what the actual financial impact is, right? Like there's good feedback loops here, both from a, an effectiveness and an efficiency point of view, but you use them to drive changes. And I think so many companies don't do that, right? They don't put that rigor in place. But, you know, when you get the rigor down, then all the creativity starts to build on top of that. And I, what were some of the harder things then about getting that working? Like, like the metrics, was that an easy conversation in your company? Or was there like debates about, no, that's wrong. We were in the wrong thing. Or what were some of the things that you found difficult about making yeah. those transitions? Or, or you might even do differently if you did it again. There's still debates, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe part of the, the sign of a healthy skepticism somewhere. But what I think what we did is we kind of, we've been through the times you don't want. We got to a point where our software, it's not that they were unreleasable, but we were, we were held up getting new ideas into the market because we couldn't get a release out stably everywhere for a couple of weeks. And that was a couple of weeks delay on something. And then there were times when the builds were read for 75% of the developers and quants on a system. And you think, hang on, this, we know the world we don't want to be in because we've lived it and we're kind of paying the bill of backing out from it. We were lucky that we had a strong enough business to be able to afford the bill to back out of that complexity wall as, as we talk about it. But I think then you end up, certain teams said, no, well, we, don't, we don't really believe in this releases metric because our systems are, are too difficult to release or what have you. But we, we actually, head of engineering, mixed up the, the time since the last release metric with the number of changes that are still unreleased. And he yeah. called that at risk and basically multiplied the two numbers by one another and said, the more changes you've got and the longer since the deployment, the more risk you're at. And so you'd have these certain systems that were way out, like comets flying off on the graph. And you could see those were the riskiest systems. There was a lot of change and there wasn't the right discipline around release. Whereas systems that didn't change much, you could leave them for weeks and weeks at a time. It didn't matter. And really, we had the arguments, oh, come on, this is like you guys are going on too much about this. Then we had some big outages where teams tried to roll forward and they hadn't done a release for weeks and weeks. And the roll forward broke because other things had changed. And then it's like, ah. Okay, penny drops. This is why you need to do this. It's about reducing risk. And I think then it just became understood that people don't worry about not being able to release new ideas to the market fundamentally anymore. We're thinking, well, actually, we're releasing five times as many as we used to. So it was kind of, you need to get enough of you believing in the mission and that you are committed to doing it to get through, I guess, almost like bashing through the wall. Our journey, and, and that, I think, of a lot of people who've done this DevOps related stuff, but really try to understand why you're doing it rather than just doing the things because they're on the, on the sheet. It probably means that there's enough evidence out there if you go and look for it, that this stuff does work and it's worth doing because it changes the velocity you can work at. 100%, yeah. And the thing I think I come up against the most is it seems so counterintuitive to the existing mindset so many people are in, right? They're used to getting all the features, writing them all down, doing the release, like pushing everything through rather than sort of counterintuitively, like still have a big vision, but just do lots and lots of small things, like learn your way through the uncertainty, iterate fast. And it's just so opposite to how many people have been conditioned to build software. You sort of sometimes have the argument, well, how often should we patch things and should we do upgrades? And we're trying to change the culture and mindset to say, look, if you build it from code, 
it doesn't matter because you just re-release and you've done your patching. Patching's a non-event now because you've got that. And if you've got the pipelines, it means you can test changes to infrastructure and you can do that. You can treat infrastructure like fast-moving software. Yeah, I mean, that's more of a change to make because people say, yeah, but what about the database? Because you knock that over and everything goes down. But at least you kind of deal with most of it like that. And then you've got a fewer sort of islands of availability and reliability you need to worry about. And it makes it easier to navigate the rest of it. What I'm hearing you talk here as well about is sort of taking a little bit of a probabilistic approach to work, right, as well. I think sometimes a lot of the companies sort of go all or nothing on these things rather than recognizing, you know, I think your example about systems that are sort of back office systems that are slower moving or slower iteration versus stuff that you want to change at a high frequency, right? I, I think that talking about how they're different and they can move at different paces and I love this idea of your risk metric, right? Thinking about like the number of changes multiplied by the times it's been released as well, just to make that visible to people. They're just great behaviors for people to think about as they're going through this. So this is great from your own individual leadership team, sort of story about the changes you had to make. But you mentioned another sort of one that really reminded me of actually what Netflix did many, many years ago. So when when Adrian Cockcroft was in there trying to, you know, encourage people to embrace public cloud, which was sort of, again, sort of hypocrisy at the time where everybody had these sort of, you know, we must have our own data centers to deliver things. We can't trust the public cloud. You know, what Amazon are building, we don't understand. And, and Netflix wasn't an engineering company, right? It, it wasn't seen as the tech thing that it is now it was, it was pretty uncool right it was a cd delivering business yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah right like what tech person wants to work there but i think one of his interesting hacks that he share is that you know they starting to publish open source was a real interesting way to like like show the quality of code and work that they were doing inside the company like outside the company right and it was sort of like oh you use you know, whatever package name, ABC, and that's really cool. Oh, did Netflix build out? Oh, wow. I, I didn't know they were an engineering company. Or, But it also helped sort of set the direction when nobody knew how to solve that problem and make public cloud the thing that it's become now. Them sort of dropping packages out there was an interesting way for them to sort of guide Amazon's roadmap in a way. It's another sort of hack, right? So I love these examples where everybody else is doing one thing, but the people who are getting the real breakthroughs are doing something very different. And I think you, you mentioned this great transition that the company sort of went through from being a little bit, as you said, closed, which again, made you very successful to a point. But to get to the next level, you've, you've sort of, again, had to flip this to be a bit more open, both culturally inside with people and collaboration right through to now with your engineering and starting to build these open source teams. And so can you talk a little bit about that transition as well? Because again, I think it's, it's probably obvious to you now, but at the time I can imagine you sitting down with the leadership team going, all right, folks, we're going to start publishing our IP, especially after a security event that you've had. Like it just, it just sounds like that's yeah. going to be a fun conversation. So that comes down very much to which bits it is that you're, sort of exposing. So the bits that we do, I mean, one thing we've, we've realized, I guess, with the whole open source thing is there is so much good work out there being done by so many people. So whether it's tools that you use to manage infrastructure or data science libraries or things that you might use to do data processing or build pipelines or do application tests, there's all these things out there. 
And the, the way we look at it is that these are almost like a kit car that you buy but 90% built. So you've just got to do a little bit of fettling on the last bit and then you can make it work for you. And what we've realized in doing that is it's like you get the power of 10,000 engineers when you only have a few hundred because all these general problems about shuffling data around and, and storing stuff and securing things and processing stuff, they're problems that lots of people try to solve. So don't try and fight that. Sort of use the benefit of, uh, I guess, the wisdom of crowds. But what we've realized with the open source work is a lot of the time it's win-win because we've found a problem with the library. It doesn't quite work. It doesn't have a feature yet. We can either fix it in V1 and then somebody creates V2 and V3 and V4. And every time we bring it in the door, we have to do the fix again. Or we can contribute the fix back and hope that's useful for other people. And then every time another new version comes out our way, it's got our fix in it already. So we've been doing that a lot. And we're not alone in that. I mean, lots of companies, I think, are waking up to this sort of being part of the broader community actually benefits everyone. We don't have to put any of our intellectual property out there to benefit. We had one of our systems that was previously written. It was like most of our software in in the old days was Windows.net based. It had been built basically from an Excel spreadsheet-based system, and then that wasn't big enough. So they built some processing and some multi-machine data munging stuff, and they ended up with a whole load of code that was all about shuffling data around. They realized when they moved to port that into Spark and, and a full Linux-based system that 90% of the old code could be thrown in the bin because 90% of it was about data munging and handling it and passing it around. So 90% of that platform is now in the bin and we use open source technologies for that, but we can focus our engineers on the business logic that makes sense for us. So it's not sort of altruistic for us to be involved in, in open source. It's very much a commercially savvy approach but it also is nice to know that we're, I mean, we've got various guys who we sponsored now to actually do the open source work on the project that they love and they're part of because it's a project that we'd like to use. So we're actually paying them directly. So instead of them doing it as a night sort of job on top of their normal job, they actually get paid to do the thing they love. And if it's a model I hope more companies will pick up and try and build. So we're not necessarily just building an open source platform that we try to sell. We're actually sponsoring various people in various ecosystems around the world to do so. There's so many good points here, but the one that always jumps out to me, and you said at the beginning, you have like suddenly 10,000 developers working with you rather than trying to do everything. Everyone has finite resources, right? So rather than hundreds, there's tens of thousands of people working on this problem, right? And and when they're when they're known problems that it like and then contributing that back to makes again it's that is good. That's good for everybody. But so many people still are afraid to embrace this, right? Like, I think it seems so obvious to you now. Like, what were some of the pushbacks that you experienced straight away with this? And what would be your advice to other people then as they start to try and bring more of these open systems into their company? Because, you know, most CIOs, especially at the moment with this remote work transition, right? Like, the biggest gripe I hear from CIOs now is, they used to have a sort of library of software that was like, you know, 50, whatever it is. And then COVID happened. And then people were like pulling out credit cards and like buying 15 different versions of like a whiteboarding tool or people feel like with new software coming in is actually causes more problem that there's more things to support. There's more, creates more complexity in the, in the real estate. Like, how did you balance that conversation for folks? I mean, that's still a worry, to be honest with you. 
their first arguments around the open source stuff are, well, it won't have support with it or it's not professional software. And I think we've got quite a strong engineering community and actually most of our engineers would rather build something than buy something. So it wasn't too difficult to say to them, well, instead of buying something that's closed and you don't like that because you can't pop the bonnet and fix it, let's fetch something that's almost nearly done and then you can finish it off if you want to. So you kind of, you get that benefit. So I think we pretty quickly got past the idea because we'd actually had some fairly big failures with closed source software systems where it was fine to begin with and then we realized there were errors or bugs or and then the turnaround times on fixing it were too slow. So open source is, is a really powerful model if you have a strong enough engineering culture in the organization. I wouldn't recommend doing it because we, for instance, we've built our own Kubernetes specialism internally because of the way we want to build and operate the platform and we use upstream dispos rather than a, a badge one. But for some companies, that won't be right. They'll want the support model to go along with it. But, but there's a lot more firms to do that now. But I think one of the things we're trying to do with the software variety problem, well, twofold, I guess. One is we've tried to focus on standards. So standards for how we interchange data. So for instance, as one of the standards in data science is this parquet format for files, which seems very low level. But we used to have all different systems would use their own way of storing data. Now we've started doing a lot more of it in Parquet. You realize that somebody can find a Parquet file and download a tool off the internet that has nothing to do with any of our software, and they can use it within minutes because it's able to read in a Parquet file. So actually, you don't have to worry about the software variety as much if you've standardized on some interchange protocols and some sort of standard ways of plugging stuff together. And then the other thing we've also tried to do is to get people talking. So when you do have teams that don't communicate, then yes, they will all go off and say, I've got a problem, I found a hammer, I found a different hammer, yeah. and I found another one. So what we've done is we've tried to, and this is still an ongoing challenge, is A, we're starting a sort of an architecture function where we try and talk about people's designs and sort of have these working groups. They're relatively casual, but to try and make people talk about stuff before they commit pen to paper, I guess. And also then have people talk about the things that they've discovered and they've done and advertise their discoveries. So we had one team the other week that was, they were wanting to solve a problem with how we monitor some of our trading systems. And they'd found a cool technology to do it. But actually, we already had a technology in-house. It's fully supported. It's offered out of the platform teams. It's got site resiliency. It's scalable. We've got, we know how much it costs that could actually solve that requirement. Just the team didn't know about it. And as soon as we got them talking, they looked and said, well, why do we need to do all the work to bring that new tech in? Because you can do us a, a build of it right now. So I think a lot of it is you've got to fight to make the communication work. And it's the most unnatural thing. And something you said to us, actually, in one of your, your meetings, you said, we were asking about organizational structure. And you said, look, it doesn't really matter which org structure you're in, because there'll be good bits to it and bad bits to it. So you take the good bits for free, and then you have to spend all your effort fighting the bad aspects of the org structure. And that's been very true. Whichever way we're organized, it's the downsides that you have to work to deal with because you get the good sides for free. And getting people talking is, is an important way to cut across those silos, I think. Right on. Nice. Love it. So looking ahead then, right? Like, what are some of the things you're sort of excited about on the horizon? You're in this sort of change of role, as you said, more strategic, future-focused. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you're looking ahead to now that's getting you excited and pumped and thinking, wow, this, this could radically change how we do everything again? Yeah, I guess, well, apart from getting back out and being able to have a beer in a, in a restaurant <laughs> or something, it's kind of, 
a bunch of the stuff that I've been trying to do on the future focus stuff is is about the art of the possible, thinking, okay, what could be just around the corner? And it has been hard during this this COVID era to get people to think like that because I think that sort of that innovation, that sort of being able to bounce off people, it is easier done face to face. That's sort of when you're bouncing ideas around this. People have been able to work really effectively and get on with the work they have in front of them from home. And I think people have tried really hard to do that and not sort of feel that they're slipping behind. But for me personally, being able to get together with people and think about, right, what does this thing feel like it means in the future? Where does it, where do I think things are going? It means I think there's some really interesting things in for companies like us, how do we best use public cloud while we have quite a big investment in private data centers? How do we integrate? Everybody's using things like Kubernetes and containerization to abstract away the hardware from the software. But actually, the hardware is really important because there's lots of innovation going on in hardware. So how do you square that circle? That feels like an interesting challenge. How do you deal with a more dispersed workforce and keep things like the kind of the, the state of DevOps metrics trending in the right direction and not have accidents or poor designs coming out. So can you layer across tools or architecture approaches that help people to work in those ways? So yeah, there's lots to think about. I think there always has been in in technology. That's why I kind of love it as a career. Right, yeah. Well, I think that's definitely a shared thing for us, right? Like what's going to be the next thing, figuring it out, tackling the uncertainty, it's super fun. If you had one then little bit of advice then, you know, like for someone who you know, could be in a similar position than you were a number of years ago when you were the great questions, as you mentioned before, like, why isn't this working? The people who are sort of sitting there banging their heads against the wall, what would be some of the tips that you would give them then to sort of get started when they have that sort of sense that, you know, what they're doing today is actually limiting their success? I guess one of the important things is to try to don't lose touch with the people actually doing the job. Like in any sort of more senior role, you're quite distant from actually doing the job at hand. You kind of think you remember how to do it, but chances are it's changed since the time you actually were at the coalface on the help desk or writing code. Go and talk to people. Go and figure out what it actually feels like, what their problems actually are. And then try and take a step back from that and look at any influence you can from the outside world. Look at trends in the ways technologies are changing or companies that appear to be successful. Read, read more. I didn't realize how bad it was for me not to have read enough in the time. And then, and this works for me, it might not work for everyone, stew on it. I sometimes, I'm, I'm a real deadline, last minute person. But what I find myself doing is thinking about the thing I need to do a lot in the shower, on holiday, walking, whatever. And then actually, if you sometimes just let your mind tell you the answer, you'll find it's there. You just have to kind of quieten down a bit. The whole dopamine hit of email, 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 and respond to Twitter message, it doesn't give you time to think. So you got to try and make that space to synthesize what you've heard, because often the answer is there. You just need to let it come out. Sorry, that sounds very kind of zen, but there you go. No, and I love this, right? Because I think we are so programmed to be in response mode like all the time. And another one of my favorite people to work with worked in a very well-known financial institution in New York. What I used to do was book 90 minutes in his calendar every other day where he would just go and walk around Central Park and just process, like think about the challenges, the decisions he had to make. And I thought that was one of the most powerful parts of the method that he used. That was his reflection time is mm-hmm. to do like this slow thinking 
And it's impossible to do when you're in there in the muck of bullets, people knocking on your door. Here's another problem. Context switching, like it's impossible to give these things thought. So I think you have to make time for them. You know, it's going to give you that time. And I think that's that's better advice for folks on that path. The the Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow book is really good for understanding how your brain needs that, that sort of slow thinking time for sure. Well, Chris, it's been really fun as ever catching up and hearing your story and learning even more things, you know, about what your journey has taken you to hear. I'm really excited to see what you do next. And yeah, thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me.